0: This is Defenders TV Podcast Episode 190 about Daredevil Season 3 Episode 5 The Perfect Game. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 190, and we are looking at Daredevil 305, the perfect game. I am one of your hosts, John,
1: And I'm your other host, Derek.
2: And rounding out the group, it is I, Chris.
1: See, I lied. I wasn't your other host, Derek. There's three of us. We're back again, all three of us together. Yes. We did share with our fellow Defenders last week, Chris, on our last episode, that you had said you were hopeful that Daredevil would never come out in the month of October because it was your worst month of the year. We're almost at the end of the month, which means we do have you back for this episode, which is awesome. Welcome yes. back.
2: Thank you. I was, I was actually trapped in a prison for the last episode. <laughs> um, luckily, there was a small issue between the wardens and the other staff mm-hmm. and you know what i managed to sneak out back for this episode
0: oh uh, we're going down that route you see we kind of said that you were more of a felix manning type uh, person sent yeah. around the world to make problems disappear
2: i you could say that you could say that i do make problems disappear but maybe in a less permanent solution <laughs> Uh, there's nothing more permanent the way than Felix does it, and I do not want to be known that I am that guy. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I wish, because like, if it, being a fixer is a cool name. What do you do? I fix stuff. What do you mean? You kill Wouldn't people. I like to know. <laughs> I'm a carpenter, or I'm, I'm a builder, yeah, exactly. maybe? <laughs> so before we jump into this episode, I mm-hmm. wanted to give uh, a massive props. Congratulations to any of the Staff, the uh, stunt guys, the actual cast, the directors, the writers, anyone who was involved in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally think, and Derek, you can attest this, the two of us said it and said, this would have been my another, this needs an Emmy type yeah. scene. And <laughs> as soon as I saw it, and I was like, no, I know we have a lot of those, but seriously, I say it every time, but they keep outdoing themselves. This right now is. Golden television. Beyond that, golden cinematography in eleven minute, or what was it, ten fifty two minute winner, as they call it in the industry, that they managed to film in one day,
1: yeah,
2: with one day of rehearsals. That everyone called them crazy for even considering trying it. The end scene where Charlie uh, Cox, i.e., Matt, is in the one of the final rooms and he's against the wall and he's coughing blood and he's breathing really deeply. Mm-hmm. That was actually because in the very last scene, Charlie Cox was run ragged and exhausted. The pure beauty of this scene, the pure beauty of the acting, the, yeah. the stunt guys did an amazing job. The um, the old one-two, I don't know what they call it, the, the kind of hide-and-seek switcheroo, mm-hmm. where it's a, a mix between Charlie Cox and his uh, fantastic stunt double. Chris Brewster, yeah. Was, yeah. yeah, who just got wailed on in this episode Mm -hmm. (laughs) the bit where at the very beginning where he comes into the second hall the first hall for him and he gets attacked by the two guys in the full riot gear Mm -hmm. and uh brewster goes down it's brewster who goes down getting beaten and the camera pans slightly further up and that's where charlie cox is already lying and then he comes up yeah yeah, uh, but again, all in one beautiful take. So I just wanted to give my opinion, which like that's hard to top.
1: Yeah, that was a tough episode for you to miss, Chris, as well, because it's uh, it is the one that's most talked about so far that I've seen uh, for the rest of the series. This is the episode that has the one that's most talked about. You know, some people don't watch the show for the characters and stories. Some people just watch the show with a big action sequence. And this is something that can't be topped in 11 minute action scene which is all done in one take with dialogue with character moments as well you know it's way way beyond what they attempted in season one and has a lot more meaning for the show in this season so yeah yeah they did an absolutely brilliant job so i'm glad you've been able to talk about
2: it thank you that's a uh, now moving swiftly on mm-hmm. let's talk about episode five would you call this our flashback episode
1: Yes this is definitely our flashback episode but following on from that episode forward, they do some su- such great stylistic choices in this episode to make it not feel like the standard flashback episode.
2: Yeah and I think that that's why I kind of questioned it because of the choice they made mm-hmm. they blended the flashback in in such a unique way I went okay maybe this isn't that one
1: before we get into that let's get into the actual episode details and obviously if you haven't subscribed to the podcast you can pop over to our website at defenderstvpodcast.com loads of options there for you to subscribe to the podcast it gets you all of our coverage of the marvel movies all of the defenders tv shows that we've covered so far and all of our future podcasts about comic books and all the rest of the stuff so pop on over there if you want to subscribe to anything we do
0: yeah derek what are some of the episode details
1: Yep. Uh, The episode was directed by Julian Holmes, a London-based director who we talked about previously for his work on Iron Fist Season 2, Episode 8, Citadel on the Edge of Vengeance. An excellent episode. Uh, Some major, major moments for Iron Fist in that episode. Um, And he also directed some episodes of the Doctor Who spin-off class. Uh, So he's done lots and lots of stuff that we've enjoyed. And the episode was written by Tanya Kong. Tanya has worked in many writers' rooms over the years, but this is one of her first actual writing credits, along with two episodes of the brand new season of Arrow. Not but a fan of Arrow for the last three or four seasons, but apparently this is getting quite good reviews this season so far. There's already been two episodes, I think, have aired so far, and I've got pretty good reviews so far. So hopefully Tanya Kong is among the new writers that are bringing some much-needed reinvigoration to Arrow. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff.
0: Well... There's only one way, isn't there, to go on a show,
1: and that's up. Exactly, exactly. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode?
0: Sure. When Fisk learns that Matt escaped from the taxi, he tells the FBI that he has a criminal fixer named Matt Murdock. Karen confronts Fisk's actual fixer, Felix Manning, but he threatens her with his knowledge of her family, including her brother's death. Rainer Deem questions both Karen and Foggy about Matt, and both try to direct him towards Fisk and his crimes. Meanwhile, Wilson Fisk reviews a file on Dex, and learns that he used his skillful aim to kill his baseball coach as a child. He was taught to be more empathetic through a therapy as he grew up, but appeared to use it as a cover for his psychopathic tendencies, such as the time he worked for a suicide prevention hotline. It was there that he started working with Julie and fell for her, and now he finds her working at the hotel, but accidentally reveals that he has been stalking her. (laughs) However, Wilson Fisk sees the potential for Benjamin Poindexter to become a villain that the public can focus on rather than himself. Elsewhere, Karen
1: reveals to Foggy, through attorney-client privilege, that she killed James Wesley. A revelation, long time in the making, right the way back from season one. Um, I do think, John, I know you mentioned a couple of uh, episodes ago that you feel that they did skip over a lot of season two. This does feel a lot more connected to the events of season one that were unresolved in season two, which was kind of had the purpose of setting up the Punisher and setting up the Defenders, didn't really deal with a lot of the issues that were coming out of season one. This really does feel like it's kind of taking on from season one of Daredevil.
0: Yeah, it really does, actually. Um, and I, I'm really pleased it is. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm finding Karen Page much more engaging, uh, in this season so oh, yeah. far. And indeed, Foggy Nelson, uh, they really were sidelined, I think, in season two. And, and to be honest, it's only really now that I'm kind of sort of feeling that that was the case. At the time, I, I kind of quite enjoyed season two in its entirety. Absolutely. But I wasn't too bothered that uh, these two characters maybe were reduced in terms of the size of their role in that season. Whereas I think this season has just shown how integral they are to Matt Murdoch and, and making you you know have that connection to Matt Murdoch as well because you do connect to him. I think through these two characters. And I think having their roles reduced in season two, certainly relative to season one and certainly uh, so far this season, it it just kind of separates you a bit from from Matt Murdock Mm -hmm. um, as a character.
2: I'm right there with you on that. I think, and actually Matt says it in this season, there is no Matt Murdock, there's only Daredevil. Mm -hmm. And I think what we find is in the way that Lois Lane anchors Clark Kent. Through her, he learns more mm-hmm. is very much the way that Foggy Nelson and Karen Page ground Matt Murdock. They mm-hmm. keep him from be- staying Daredevil 24-7. Yeah. And I agree that this is more closely connected with season one, be it. Season two was kind of self-contained in a degree. Not much of it um, has a direct impact on this season so far. Mm-hmm. Again, so far we're five episodes in. And I really feel that through Foggy and Karen, they'll bring Matt and his humanity back mm-hmm. And I think they they will ground him in this episode to show him that it is the devil needs to be both in the light and in the darkness.
1: Yes, yeah, definitely. So yeah, one of the big moments that happened in the episode before we get into our case notes, uh, obviously we have the the official confirmation of the character of Benjamin Poindexter. We got his full name now, we know who that character is in the comic book, so we will from now on be talking about him in terms of the comic book character. Loads of great indications in this episode as to who it is, so we'll be talking about that later on as we go through our case notes. But first up, case note number one, there's no corpse. I had to choose that as the name of this case note. Um, once again, we're going to mention it hopefully the final time but goodbye born again a great moment in the comic books this is a line from the comic books there is no corpse the body of matt murdoch in that taxi cab was not discovered that was directly taken from a wonderful scene in the comic books where uh, wilson Fisk is looking out from his penthouse over the city of new york and being told that the body of matt murdoch wasn't found with the taxi
2: yeah they are drawing quite liberally at this point in the story on born again a
1: certain moments. yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm okay with that oh, because yeah. of multiple things, but the most beautiful part is seeing the director's interpretation of the comic book panels mm-hmm. in this show. There are literally you could pause some of the, the scene and you would get panel for panel shots. Yeah. And I really want someone to do that. I know there's going to be somewhere on Reddit, somewhere someone has done this. Mm-hmm. And seeing poor Donovan having to be the guy to say that, <laughs> I, I love was like, oh.
1: I, I love that they give that additional reason why he says it. You know, it's he says it once and then he doesn't get a reaction from Fisk. Fisk is looking away and Donovan goes, um, there is no corpse because he's going... I hope he heard me because this is a really important thing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be blamed. It's not my fault. you know. Uh, But, yeah, it also gets into that whole discussion with Donovan about, you know, well, this guy's a blind guy. We've seen all the documentation from all the stuff that go back from when he's nine years old, when this accident happened to him and everything tells us he's blind. So this can't be the guy you're looking for. And Fisk shows him the footage that he has of that battle in the uh, in the prison uh, in the last episode, showing him going. He might be blind, but look what he can do. Of course, he's going to be able to get out of that taxi. This guy is free and clear. Uh, Nice little moment between the two of them there.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we find out later as well that Felix Manning is the man uh, who, you know, Wilson Fisk's fixer, who Mm -hmm. has uh, organized that taxi run to the bottom of the Hudson River. (laughs) Um, And Fisk pointedly says, tell felix he can't fail effectively you Mm -hmm. know and certainly we've heard his name attached to keeping vanessa safe so you know interesting stuff there's part of me that kind of thinks that vanessa might be dead actually Uh, i don't know why there's just something there in my head that is this whole Um Wilson, Fisk and Vanessa. Yes, she is absolutely important. But I I wonder if it's a bit of a ruse sometimes, certainly given that, you know, when Felix is speaking with Karen, he does kind of say that he gets rid of problems uh maybe vanessa is a problem i don't know i i I don't think so but there was just part of me in this moment that
1: kind of felt i wonder if vanessa actually is still alive that's interesting both of you have said that now over the last couple of episodes both of you have thought that that is vanessa safe is vanessa dead is she alive i'm still of the opinion that since wilson fisk never said to anybody kill vanessa that they would not go against his wishes he wants her back and I would not want to be the one that's covering up that she's already dead. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't want to have the wrath of Wilson Fisk when he finds out that Vanessa is no longer alive, if she's no longer alive. So I think she's being kept very safe. I think she's probably in bubble wrap. Um, although <laughs> that would probably kill her, actually, wouldn't she? Uh, But in bubble wrap from the neck down so she could still breathe.
2: Yes, I agree with you. I, they're, they're painting a picture where... You are meant to question to a degree. Okay. I don't want to spoil myself, but to see if the actresses comes in mm-hmm. because I could just check IMDb and if she has an acting credit for this season, we know she at least comes back in. So I don't want to spoil it, but um, I do hope we see her at least once. Yeah. Otherwise, she's the imaginary cog that is turning Wilson Fisk. She is mm-hmm. the re- the lever to the pulley, and I very much I'm like, yeah, no, you need to bring her in. You need to show her off.
1: Definitely. I'd say the good news is, though, Chris, even if you did check IMDb, remember, we've had two Wilson Fisks already. You know, we've had the version of Wilson Fisk that's on the shoulder of Matt Murdock in his white suit as the devil to daredevil, effectively. Um, So even if you do see that she appears in the season later on, maybe she just appears as the devil on Wilson Fisk's shoulder to tell him to take out the Daredevil, you know? You yeah, never know. So,
2: But one thing I did want to say just to all of our uh, fellow defenders who have read Born Again, mm-hmm. the Fixer, the named character, Felix, from Born Again, um, he has been known, so unfortunately I have the burden of knowledge.
1: <laughs> A little bit, but I think what's really good about what the, the way they're using Born Again in this season is that they're using the template of it and we know how it ends. We know how, how that book ends, and it can't end that way. All the big things that happen in that book can't end the way they end in that book, which is great. So, yes, they've taken the template and the style of it and some of the dialogue and some of the moments, but it definitely can't follow the path of uh, of Born Again, which is great because that would just ruin it.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. But let's let's move on to the potentially the, the biggest revelation uh, or the kind of turning point in this episode where we see Wilson Fisk decide how he wants to remove Matt Murdock from the chessboard
1: mm-hmm.
2: in that he goes to Nadim and goes, I've had a fixer all along. I've had this lawyer named Matthew Murdock who has been on my payroll and he's been cleaning up my messes forever. Mm-hmm. Very much pointing the bloodhound in the opposite direction, and basically turning the FBI, turning Matt Murdoch into a wanted criminal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Really interesting, isn't it? Because I've, li- I've liked Ray Dean right the way back from the first episode. We've already liked him. This episode, the tenacity that he goes down this path, because obviously he's been fed real information about the Albanians now for quite a while uh, when he's been working with Fisk. But this time when he gets this information about Matt Murdoch, he will not let it go regardless of his dealings with Karen and with Foggy. He is just following this bone to get Matt Murdoch taken down.
2: And I really do not like Ray in this episode. Yeah, no, yeah. I do He he becomes, he becomes a completely different type of FBI agent. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's using intimidation.
3: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: I, I don't know what best way to describe it for our kind of international listeners. He, he steps up into what I would call Foggy's personal space and nearly goes nose to nose with him. Kind of like, oh, I know you're lying. You're going to tell me everything. And we see this fantastic... um, We see the fantastic Foggy Nelson doing the Foggy Nelson, which is going lawyer. Mm-hmm. Very much going lawyer. And kind of going, well, I'm going to reserve my right and ask you to walk out my door. And I'm butchering the fantastic line that we get there.
0: <laughs> I think it's really interesting here with Ray and Nadine because... I, I'm still suspicious of him and I, I think it's interesting Chris um, and and yourself Derek that you're kind of saying I don't like him here he's really going after Karen and foggy and he is and you even get that really nice moment from Karen that you know where she is questioning why he is simply, unquestioningly going along with what Wilson Fisk is saying. Mm -hmm. You know, she does throw at him Redline National Bank, uh, Felix Manning, VanCorp, all these different things. And again, it is that thing for me where I'm still not convinced Ray Nadim is anyone truly innocent in this at the moment. And the reason I say that is because I think if he is part of Fisk's plan, if he is kind of on the payroll of Wilson Fisk, Mm -hmm then you would go after these with much more Augusto and like the, uh, the Albanians. But here, you know, he really does um, have that sense of taking down uh, both Foggy and Karen. I mean, Foggy even says, well, what are you charging Matt with? And he goes, nothing yet. So he goes like, right, well, then uh, the only thing... That I'm going to do is show you the door. I think you know Karen is the same. She, you know, she says, "Okay, we didn't knowingly uh, work for Wilson Fisk because at the time we took the particular case that he's alluding to, which is uh, obviously with uh, James Wesley, uh, who who came to their office." Oh, Wesley! Um, I know, poor old Wesley. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Karen. And then, you (laughs) know. It's making billions
1: now. It's okay. It
0: doesn't matter. Loved Wesley. Mm -hmm. Absolutely loved Wesley. And Karen took him, snatched him, if you will, from our tender thoughts and grasp. That was Uh, a different time. Different time. Different time. Different time. But yeah. And and so, you know, she really says we didn't knowingly. So I really do feel that Ray Nadim, um, you know, is maybe going after them a bit too much here,
1: for sure. I think it just feels like Wilson Fisk has just saved himself a bundle of cash you know he doesn't need to have Ray in his pockets what it feels like in this episode for me it feels like all he needs to do is just throw him a bone the doggy goes and runs away and goes with it he doesn't need to say you're on my payroll follow these guys he needs to just go give a plausible concept that maybe Matt Murdock might be a criminal and off Ray goes and runs with the bone you know it feels like um He's going way too far with it. And he's got that cocky arrogance of somebody that thinks they're in the right. We have that moment, as you mentioned with Karen, where she goes, you're just not asking the right questions. How can you consider yourself an investigator? I'm an investigative journalist and I'm asking better questions than you are. And you're supposed to be the one keeping us safe. And when he does release her at the end, when he says, you know, you're not actually being held in any and in, under any charges, she asks the similar question that Foggy asks. She goes, well, I'm going to be over here asking the right questions of the right people and get to the bottom of this actual situation. I'm not going to be just following whatever Wilson Fisk wants me to do. You know, it's just interesting. That's probably the reason why I feel like I'm completely off with Ray in this episode is because I feel like he's just following the lead of what He's being told to do.
2: I honestly don't know. And I think that's one of the best parts. Mm-hmm. Some of the storylines we have guessed correctly in the in the past. Some of the storylines we have wildly miscalculated. <laughs> but they are playing the game in such a way with this season. You do not know who to suspect. Yeah. There's a high chance that some, none or all are on Wilson Fisk's paywall. Exactly. And they they allude to all of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, so I'm 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 now very much I just don't trust them. Yeah. Either he's a bad FBI agent, or he's a, a good FBI agent who's doing bad things.
1: I think he's an FBI agent who's been on the outs, as we found earlier on in the season and now thinks he's got his chance to Mm. be on the inside. Yeah. And he's going to go and follow that with great gusto, and off he goes. Uh, One final thing on this point that I just want to mention. I just think it's interesting how Foggy and Karen extricate themselves without actually lying to Ray. They both say exactly how long it's been since they've seen Matt. They both talk about their last conversations with Matt, and they both tell them why they're in the certain moments of the relationship without actually getting themselves re-involved in Matt's life. They don't implicate themselves in any way into what he's done and what he's being accused of. But they get themselves out of the situation by kind of going, we haven't seen them in this amount of time. Two days for foggy months for Karen. But they really don't get themselves back involved. That They don't seem like they're going to end off in jail because they've, they've told a lie to the FBI. It's a really good little moment for both of them. It tells you a lot about their characters.
2: Yeah, and they've really grown in three seasons. Mm-hmm. And that actually perfectly brings us into case note number two. Yeah. And particularly because we're talking about Ray and how he's asking all the wrong questions. To quote, to quote Karen, we do see her become visibly shaken at mm-hmm. the the bomb, if you will, that uh, they are investigating the disappearance of Wesley. And then seeing her, as you said, John, in in the summary, going and getting attorney-client privilege with Foggy, and revealing the truth that. Well, she's actually also being very hard on herself. She murdered him in self-defense to a degree. Yeah, exactly. And she's just going on to say, "No, no, no, I, I killed Wesley," and dropping that bombshell. One thing is attorney-client privilege really a thing like that? If I give you a dollar bill and you are a lawyer, I can tell you anything. I mean, I know what you mean. It's interesting. I just think it. I it plays for effect, really. Here, I'm very shocked that they are playing the wesley card as much as they did
0: i kind of quite like that because i do think you know karen is in trouble and i think she's in trouble twofold one of the things i'm not entirely sure is did they give her her gun back and is that the same gun that was used to kill wesley in fact is he missing or Did they find a body? That's, you know, what I mean is, I just wonder if that's going to come back to kind of haunt her um, the fact that the FBI took hold of her weapon. And I I just can't remember now uh, whether they gave it back. I just wonder if there's something in that moment where, you know, uh, they really make that point when the FBI stop her on the street that she's got a concealed weapon. He takes it out of her bag. And then she's seeing pictures of uh wesley the uh, as ray nadim again ha- brings these out again is this is this just simply a line of questioning because uh he represented this kind of cover company this this front company uh called what was it crg or cgi or something like that yeah. um or is it because he does know that he went missing Um, He was Wilson Fisk's right-hand man, but there is some kind of suspicion from the Wilson Fisk camp that it was her or Foggy or Matt Murdock that killed Wesley. So, you know, she could be in trouble with the FBI. And then on the same side, she's in trouble because, you know, in approaching Felix Manning and being fairly um, sure of herself, you know, she, she goes in and says, well, I have to do this. I have to give you a right to respond to my article. And in the in that moment... Um, there's an awful lot of the past dug up and thrown in her face. And I do really like the way that Karen uh, is so shook by that, you know. So uh, it's it's really, really good, I think.
2: And speaking of that Felix scene, it's going to be interesting to see what comes of that. When you are a killing fixer, are you expected to allow your name to be put in an article by a reporter like, I, I'm assuming he's going to go, OK, well, I need to take you out now and fix you because you're going to just spread my name. Exactly.
0: And Fisk will probably look to try and kill him then uh, or at least, you know, won't employ him. I mean, in fact, I think Karen mentions that, that if his name does get into the paper, into her article, then, you know, his client base is gone because you have to have someone who is almost unknown.
2: Yeah. Derek, what do you think?
1: It is really interesting, isn't it? As I mentioned earlier on, Ray going in really cocky about being an FBI agent, and now you have Karen going in really cocky about being a member of the press and saying whatever she wants to say because she's got a new story coming out. And instantly the response from this guy is, why are you saying that to me? I'm the person that makes people disappear. you got to be pretty careful of saying that kind of stuff around me, Karen. You know, I know everything about you. I know everything about your family. I know everything about your history. I'm the one that makes people disappear. I don't just fix things. Um it's a really interesting threat and as you say John that moment where she just kind of winds back up and kind of goes oh maybe I've made a bit of a mistake coming here on my own. Maybe I made a bit of a mistake talking to this guy about what I all the information I have on him. Maybe I should have just sent the article to his post office box and not gotten a response, <laughs> you know. I think Karen's in a very dangerous position here. I also think that by foggy putting himself out there you know he, he responds quite well with uh with ray when ray comes to him and talks to him about the situation he responds quite well to him but he gets it all right he kind of says you know are you coming at me because i'm going after fisk is that why you're coming at me so i think foggy's in a very precarious position and i think karen's in a very precarious position at the moment because they're going after the big guy
2: yeah John,
0: what do you think? I I just think the chickens are coming home to roost a bit with Karen because um, I th- I think what Derek just said is right. You know, she's very high-handed, very moralistic. Mm-hmm. Yet she has killed someone. Yes, in self-defense, but I, I think the bigger issue is that she's covered it up, and of course that yeah. then chucks a massive light of suspicion uh, on her. Um, I think she has um, really thought that she is untouchable and all of a sudden within this episode you get the specter of james wesley coming back to haunt her mm-hmm. uh, and you have the fbi starting to ask questions about firstly james wesley but her relationship with matt murdoch and i mean ultimately uh you know this is difficult for her and i think even more so is that underlying all of this her past has come and slapped her right in the face through felix manning by him explaining that drugs truly do ruin families looking at her we know that potentially that storyline is about to come onto this series i think yeah I love the fact that he says your daddy put your bedroom at the back, you know, to protect his daughter. Mm-hmm. Maybe he should have been thinking more about his son. He was the one that really needed protecting. So, um, you know, this is real juicy stuff here. And I, I think that as along with these other sort of threats to her casing as as a reporter really has put her in trouble mm. i think her more so
1: than foggy to be honest yeah felix really yeah. knows everything that's going on doesn't he and he just shows it so well in those scenes
2: yep so gentlemen let's all go to the ball game
1: <laughs>
2: on case note number three the perfect game will never bring them back this is the biggest revelation we get. A fantastic flashback sequence, mm-hmm. um, not only from the cinematography where we get to see Fisk in some beautiful black and white scenes uh, giving a, a past, a, a distinct flavor in this episode, mm. but we do get the, as Derek said at the beginning of this episode, we get the confirmation of the full history of Dex, or Benjamin point dexter
1: yes he's not just any point dexter he's benjamin point dexter comic book character extraordinaire yes but this this is fascinating this whole setup of this of the scene is fascinating we had a bit of a chat about it after we watched the episode myself and john and this whole moment where you have fisk reading through the history chris you mentioned earlier on as well is this our flashback episode this isn't a flashback episode these aren't scenes that actually took place in the past. This is. Fisk reading the history of Benjamin Poindexter and extrapolating in his mind how he thinks it actually looked in real life, and all set within his apartment. I was asking the question of John earlier on. I want to ask the same question to you, Chris, as well. Is this saying that Fisk's imagination isn't as big as we think it is?
2: <laughs> we saw well.
1: We saw in season one that he was a he was a guy who um, was abused as a kid, killed his father and has set himself up as a kingpin, but wasn't a very artsy man, wasn't a person that knew art very well, until he met Vanessa, and Vanessa showed him a painting of, basically, a rabbit in snow, which was a totally white painting, and explained to him how it felt, and how it should feel to him. Three seasons on, he still not able to, to go past this huge imaginative barrier which is outside the four walls that he's surrounded. I'm wondering, are they making a bit of a comment on the fact that Wilson Fisk may think that he is a person who's into the arts, but he's not really. He's not great at getting outside of his four walls, let's say. He doesn't have that amazing imagination.
2: I didn't take it that. I took it that Wilson Fisk can only see in black and white. Maybe that too, yeah. Maybe there too. is no greys. It's basically he sees in the good and bad, what he considers the good and the bad. Mm. Uh, There are no, there are no hues. There's no Fifty Shades of Grey in this.
1: (laughs) Oh, There's definitely some grey there. There's definitely some grey there. I did think it was quite interesting, his reactions to some of the big moments in here in these scenes when we have Dex and his coach, uh, where the coach is being, very friendly with Dex. He's giving him a glove and he's giving him loads of support because he's a great player as well as everything else. He is someone that is able to hit the target every time as we see him effectively almost breaking down the wall of the boy's home that he's in by hitting that baseball off the exact same point in the wall over and over again. We see those moments and you kind of see Fisk's reaction to it where he's going, hmm, this is going to go bad. And then when it does go bad, it is instantly, he's looking at Dex with that face of sympathy on him going, well, now I know why he's there, and I will—I pro- would protect this guy, even though he's just killed his coach for not keeping him in the game. Basically,
2: it's really interesting that we find that Dex is a pure psychopath with abandonment issues. Yes, and hmm. they made the character this skin crawling creep with, and I—I I, I don't mean that just in terms of his overall. When, uh, the more we learn about him, the more vile the character becomes. It's scary, isn't it? Because yeah.
1: even that moment with the coach where he's where he's sitting down with him, and it's the moment that, it, that everything flips, obviously. It's that moment where he is told by his coach, you got to get out of the game, we've got to rest you up. And he's going, but I want to pitch a perfect game. And the coach responds to him in this really harsh way, saying you can pitch a million perfect games, but it won't bring them back. Is that Coach Bradley saying to him, I know you killed your parents?
2: I took it as that.
1: You know, is it is it saying to him you need to give up on the fact that, you know, you've lost your parents, your parents died in some way? It feels like there was more history behind that. It feels like this kid, Dex, is a murderer and was a murderer when he went to the boys' home and is now another murderer, is a murderer on top of that because he also killed his coach as well. That's just what it felt like to me. What do you think, John?
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't take it like that for his parents, although that's not to say... Yeah, he didn't kill his parents. But I I didn't really get that. I think maybe from Dr. Mercer, I kind of got more insight than from the coach. I just Mm -hmm. think the coach was kind of this stand-in surrogate guardian who just happened to push the wrong button, which made for a fantastic uh, death by baseball uh, with, yeah, that perfectly thrown baseball um, to the head, effectively. right Uh, on target, wasn't it? Yeah, really, really good. I mean... I. I'm absolutely loving this character, um, Poindexter, or now Benjamin Poindexter. Uh, I really enjoyed these flashbacks. I I liked the black and white. Mm -hmm. To me, that felt like it was because Wilson Fisk was reading it from reports. Mm -hmm. It was the black and white of the paper and the ink, or or whatever. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was just more that Fisk was so focused on who benjamin poindexter was what his motivations were it didn't matter how the additional scenery sort of played out really hence why the baseball match took place within the penthouse of the hotel Mm -hmm. just in black and white um just that kind of thing where he's so intently uh trying to figure this guy out and what Mm -hmm. he what makes him tick and it's like you say there is that moment where you see Wilson Fisk get interested as soon as he kills Coach Bradley with the baseball. There's that kind of look, almost like a semi-cocked smile comes across his face as he realizes the potential of what he has here, Mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of his abilities, but in a sense how damaged he is to have gotten there. He can see how he can leverage Poindexter for his own purpose Absolutely. and make him an ally. And you make um, a really
1: good point there. The only question that that Wilson Fisk has ever had of Dex was, where did you get these abilities from? And he's going all the way back to when he was about nine or ten years old and going, he had them even then. He's had this ability to be able to hit the target over and over and over and over again. Um really fascinating. Like that's that moment when he cocks the cocks the ear and goes, Oh, and he can also turn it to killing someone when he wants to by you know, throwing the baseball off a bar and killing the guy in the opposite direction. You know, um, yeah, fantastic.
2: And then interestingly enough, later we see Benjamin with Dr. Mercer, his psychologist. Mm. We see him age throughout. Yeah. And then we get this beautiful last session yeah. with Dex, with Benjamin, where he actually wants to kill her for dying.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, And we get, we learn how he gets this coping mechanism off her of going back through their previous sessions um, after he nearly fully kills her and he explains that he wants to kill her and that that's what he wants because of this separation anxiety, if you will. Do we think he killed her? It's left question mark. It
1: did, but it feels like she has at least explained enough to him that she maybe got out of the building. Um, <laughs> that she was able to finish that session and then be taken away to a place that he couldn't find her. It's what it feels like. You know, she feels like she's given him enough empathy techniques or empathy tricks to at least move away from him um, without him killing her. But absolutely possible. It's absolutely possible. And yeah. um, it did really feel I was wondering, did she teach him empathy or did she teach him tricks to feign empathy like directly connected for me the dexter morgan character on the show dexter i know he's called point dexter i know he's called dex but it really reminded me of dexter on the tv show because he constantly talks about the fact that i have put a layer up in front of me that makes you think that i am a normal human being when in fact i'm a monster underneath and i'm wondering is that what she has taught him in these moments has she just taught him to put up that layer or has she taught him any actual Empathy, Because he has those moments a couple of times throughout this episode when somebody says something to him where he's supposed to give an empathetic response and he uses exactly the same one that he used when she gave him the uh, false scenario of possibly having lost her cat. What would he say back to her? He yeah. gives exactly the same response twice in this episode at other times. I'm just wondering, has she just let him build this wall?
2: 100%. That's what she did in mm-hmm. this. She's given him that, that, that wall and you also hear she is the reason for his infatuation and clinging to Julie because she says, and if you struggle beyond that, find someone, mm-hmm. find someone and latch on them. Let them be your lodestone almost. North Star, she said. North Star, yeah. that was it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because I know what you guys are saying, but I, I actually did really sense the connection between Dr. Mercer and benjamin poindexter and i think that's just because you had the progression of time and i think you're right he has ultimately used these techniques that she's given to him to hide you know what does she write down his psychopathic tendencies or his you know personality disorder he has done that she may have thought that he was getting better but only in that last moment where he tries to kill her um, or wants to kill her at least. Um, Because I I don't think he does. I mean, maybe we'll find out that he has done later on. um, Killed her. Killed Dr. Mercer or something, but certainly we don't see it happen. Mm -hmm. And, And I kind of feel that There is something there between these two. She's trying to set him up with another therapist, because obviously she's dying anyway. Um, She's connected to an oxygen tank. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's saying, if you don't want to go to this therapist, anyone will do. And I think what she means by that is more that you need someone in your life that will guide you, hence the North Star analogy. But yeah, he does something completely different, which is effectively obsess. Uh, about someone at then this um, suicide prevention hotline and and we see it start to come out again because actually he hasn't but I mean she's basically telling him you need routine 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 which is really nice because you see that at the start where he's being obsessively neat with everything uh, even with the the great moment where he opens his apartment door again just to straighten the picture Mm -hmm. that you need this rigid structure so hence why he's obviously been in the army then into the fbi that discipline Mm -hmm. um so he's taken on board i think he's tried to do what she's done whether that's to hide it or it's really trying to to do it and maybe just finds it too hard because i do think that moment in the suicide prevention uh, hotline where he's just starts to talk about the m11 and the conversation with craig he you know there's a douchebag father involved mm-hmm. that he says well why don't you kill him with this m11 <laughs>
3: creepy well. um, so
0: definitely the the mask does drop uh-huh. here but i don't know there was something kind of creepily weird and comforting by dr mercer's relationship with Poindexter. I think it was a bit like Dexter and his father in Dexter. It's kind of something like that really. But ultimately, as with that show, um, things just spin out of control because that's who this guy is. You know, Poindexter is a killer. Hence why you've had the OPR investigate the shooting of the Albanians um, because he went above and beyond what maybe he should have done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also do wonder if it's because all of these scenes are seen through the dispassionate look of Wilson Fisk. Again, he's the one that's pouring through all of these details. You see when he gets to the end of all of these discussions, he's looking at every type of evidence, every type of historical piece, everything down to surveillance photographs of Dexter that were taken the same day when he was stalking Julie on his run. You know, there's photographs up until that day. There's everything that he could possibly put together and he's pieced it together into possibly something that's a bit more dispassionate than it actually happened if it had been a flashback, if that makes sense. It does. So I'm wondering if that's affecting our opinion of those scenes as well. You know, that moment when Dr. Mercer is questioning the intent of Dex and saying, no, tell me more, tell me more, tell me exactly what it is you want to do and tell me why you want to do it. I'm wondering, is that also Fisk piecing these scenes together as well? It's not exact representation of what happened. It's how Fisk sees it happening, you know, because it does feel like a really awkward thing, I suppose, for a psychologist who's on her deathbed or seemingly very close to death, has a person in the room telling them they want to murder them. Like, you know, possibly that might have played it slightly differently than tell me more information, please.
2: (laughs) Well, they were transcripts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Fisk is reading the transcripts. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it could be tone is not there. Mm -hmm. So this moves us on to point number four or case number four. Um, Everything is in its wrong place Mm -hmm. because what we have learned is Dex has put up what we assume is put up a wall to control his life. And we see his apartment and his home is pristine. And we see his little homage to the suicide uh, (laughs) prevention hotline. Where he he slams the door as he leaves and has to readjust the mirror or readjust the picture because it's slightly skewed and it's really interesting. And but then we it goes from okay, that's just slightly OCD to oh, you're going out because you're stalking Julie again. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. You're going out on your morning run to the same place as Julian, making sure that you're staying behind her at all times. Yeah, creepy. Um, But we do see that that Fisk is trying to manipulate him here. He's read all of these documents. When we look at the entire episode as a whole, we see that he has hired Julie to work in the hotel restaurant. He's paid her double the money so that she would leave her old job and move over to the restaurant that day so that he can put her right in the sights of Dex. How manipulative can Fisk get, really? Like this is pretty, pretty bad. Um I love that moment when Julie comes up to uh comes up and taps him on the shoulder and kind of asks him, Do you want a drink? And then looks in his eyes and goes, this might seem weird, but did you work in a suicide prevention place a couple of years ago? And he's like, "Yes, it is. I know. I know your name. I know everything about you, Julie. But I'm not going to tell you now." Um, <laughs> it's like the most awkward moment, and it gets even more awkward.
2: If it wasn't so creepy, it would be one of those meek, cute moments mm. that they talk about. It's almost something like a Tom Hanks movie,
1: isn't it? <laughs> Tom Hanks Ryan movie, you know.
2: If Tom Hanks was a crazy person who stalked meg ryan it's a, instead of it's you got mail it's you've got a stalker you've
1: seen the youtube re-edits of those movies haven't you <laughs> where they turned them into horror movies yeah that's pretty much this is just the horror movie version of you've got mail
2: <laughs> it's cringeworthy to watch the complete mm. breakdown of Dex. i was still hopeful
1: i must say when they were going on their date i was still really hopeful that they're going to have a conversation without him putting his foot in it and it's julie that screws it up first to be fair She says to him, What's it like working for Fisk? And you see that almost cartoon psychotic break that Dex has, where his eye starts kind of twitching and he goes, I work for the FBI. I do not work for Wilson Fisk. Like he's having that moment where he's like, Hold on a second. How did you get that impression? Um, But technically, she's right, you know? Um, She may know that Fisk is the one that hired her to work in the hotel potentially she might know that once again another character that could possibly well is under the influence of fisk but maybe she knows maybe she doesn't um but yeah then dex just completely freaks her out very very quickly everything from realizing that she worked in the suicide prevention place for three years which she never told them realizing that the dancing that she was doing was ballet Yeah, okay, that's pretty bad. And then when she says she wants to leave to feed her dog, he goes, "But you don't have a dog." Um, actually, how would I know that? Hey, (laughs) I haven't been watching it from afar for a long time.
2: Yeah, it's really bad, John. What do you think? Yeah, no,
1: it's uh, it's
0: it's a really great moment. I mean, I do just think that you know this socially awkward guy, uh, you know, just trips over himself, kind of uh, spewing out the fact that effectively he's been stalking this. Uh, this girl, this lady, Julie. um, You know, it's an absolute classic inspired choice for um, Wilson Fisk to put his weak point, uh, right bang in the middle of where he works every day Mm -hmm. in the hotel, in the presidential hotel. So it's inspired choice. And I really like the fact that, you know, it does play out like that. I think that, you know, Julia's very special to Dex, and wow, does she suddenly realize how special that she is. I I thought it was really good how freaked out she she gets, and just how it really just goes from bad to worse. Uh But then I love how Dex freaks out back at his apartment, where he just loses the plot. You know, a punch into the wall... Plates across the room. I love the spinning camera work that's been done here, just mm-hmm. showing that sense of disorientation for uh, Dexter because he is losing control and it, he's had to have rigidity, structure, routine, all these things. And that spinning of the camera just shows that breaking down. Uh, and then you get that perfectly placed uh, kitchen knife straight through the glass of the uh, gorgeous group photograph of the the um, Brooklyn Suicide Preventative Hotline uh, and, yeah, straight... julie's forehead um in this picture Mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean if there's ever an origin of benjamin poindexter aka you know what he had on his cap that bullseye mark then i mean this this just really is um fantastic and actually i don't really know a lot about bullseye uh, as a comic character this really makes me want to learn more i don't know how good his backstories are in the comic um but this kind of makes me feel that it could be absolutely fascinating, a really good character to get to know in in the comics. Um so I'll I'll need to just have an investigation on, on that
2: really.
1: Mm-hmm. And unless there's been a recent redo of his origin story, um this is not connected to the origin story. It might have been more recent potentially. Bullseye was definitely one of those characters that was created because they went We want to have a character that can hit anything really easily. (laughs) That's basically it. Right. That's your villain for this episode. Right. Grand. Okay. We're going to write the comic around having a villain that can hit anything from any distance that he wants to hit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da. There is a baseball connection um, in that there's Bullseye the perfect game. Where it, there's an arc there where he it's a miniseries where it's focused on directly him and he he goes in to take out another baseball player and end up becoming a major league player and then there is another one which tells the story of Bullseye in the minor leagues um and how he gets thrown out of that and puts him on towards towards the life of crime. Because he he grew up wanting to be a baseball player. Bullseye Greatest Hits. Okay. Uh, that is that arc where that's by Daniel Way, and mm-hmm. the reason the only reason I know that is Daniel Way did Deadpool after. Right. Um, and that's why I went. I I was going on a Daniel Way, um, run, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. Again, different to this origin story, very different, but again, it's similar to Born Again. They're taking the greatest hits, or the, the best points of all these, and kind of putting them in together. Yeah, it's a re- it's a remix. It's not a... a, not a remix, that's... Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. But I do love that our final moment with Dex is him sitting on the floor, kind of curled up in a ball, listening to Dr. Mercer talking to his childhood self, saying to him, Glad you're back here this week, Dex. I've missed you for the last week. It's a really comforting tone that she's got, and that's what's calming him back down from this craziness uh, in these scenes. Really good that he that they kind of tied it back into there as well. Uh, Let's get on to our final case note, guys. Our final case note is really that Matt was there the whole time. Uh, It was pointed out on our Facebook group. This is the reason why this is one of our points on our Facebook group over on facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast that this is the longest that we spend in any episode of daredevil without seeing matt murdoch um the first time we see him is the last two minutes of the episode so it's one of the longest episodes we've gone without seeing charlie cox on screen and we discover that actually he was in the background the whole time. He was listening in in the apartment while the police were there. He was in the room just as they broke in through the door. And lovely callback to episode four, that thing about Foggy saying that one of the neighbors always looks out if they hear any sound. To get into all the other neighbors' business, that neighbor is the one that looks out and gets put back into the room by Ray and that's what alerts Matt Murdoch that the that the FBI are coming to uh, to get him and makes him leave his his room and go outside. Nice little callbacks there. Nice little touches in there.
2: I really enjoyed that. I have to say though, I got pure Daredevil comic book vibes from the final view and shot of Matt on top of the building. Mm. Yeah. In just the the tracksuit pants, the bare feet, the hoodie. Mhm and just kind of that cocked blind man look that where he's listening yeah. to everything that Charlie Cox does so well, yeah. which is like where he's kind of expanding his senses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, if that for me was an amazing, again, similar to the very start of this episode where we see you kind of, you could almost rip that into a comic book panel yep. and it would have been beautiful. Yep.
0: Yeah. It, it's a great look on his face as he hears the FBI put out that APB uh on on him saying that he's armed and dangerous and he's kind of like me yeah like it's really really good I, I thought that was superb
2: yeah no and it's interesting that Matt is most wanted now yeah so we're going into to uh, just under our halfway point of this season and Matt is the bad guy in the eyes of the law mm-hmm. no longer just Daredevil the vigilante It is Daredevil is the vigilante who is always wanted. Matt Murdock, attorney at law, avocado at law, if you will, is a most wanted criminal. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see where we go from this.
1: Absolutely. Kingpin has already got his way and it's only episode five. Let's see how that plays out for the rest of the season. Uh, That seems to be all of our case notes for this episode. Guys, any notes about the episode?
2: No, nothing major for me, except as we've said throughout this episode, if you have not read Born Again at some point, put it on your pull list. It's a nice graphic novel and look at some of those other uh, two character collections that I discussed for a second and just in case I get called out for it Daredevil 230 uh, is the issue where Felix Manning is brought in
1: interesting interesting yeah definitely have to have a look at that as well well with the notes done and our case notes done Chris do you defend Daredevil season three episode five the perfect game
2: I do I really do um this season for me is full of twists turns and much like last episode last episode would have been in my is now in my top three of all episodes of a Netflix season mm-hmm. just from that one scene alone. this episode while not in the the not in the top five, it's still a fantastic episode for the choices the bold choices it makes um giving us an origin story and showing us. In such a unique way. Yeah. um, And explaining the character. Making you somewhat empathize, but also be so creeped out Uh by a character. Making us question who is good, who is bad, what are the motives behind everything. Right now, everything feels important. Everything is a, a growth of a character or more information of a character. Yeah, I really do. And I'm enjoying this. So I completely defend this. I'm eager to see where we get to by the end of the sixth hour. Mm-hmm. So I defend this episode. Excellent. Excellent.
1: John, do you defend Daredevil season three, episode five, the perfect game?
0: I do defend this episode of Daredevil. I give it four and a half lethal baseballs out of five. Yes. Um, do you know, I really just enjoyed spending the time with Benjamin Poindexter here and seeing Wilson Fisk's take on how this kid grew up to be the FBI agent that he is uh, and effectively uh, that special skill set. I I thought it was really really nice and I'm glad that we've had that origin tale for Bullseye even though we're probably not going to have him called that uh, anytime soon. I really like the fact that Karen's past um, and her presence sort of caught up with her. Uh, I really enjoyed seeing her face down Felix Manning and effectively get given the wobbles as he reels off her uh, distant past that we haven't seen. I'm so glad the cameo, albeit in a photograph of James Wesley, uh came back to haunter as well. Really, really good. And a, a similar thing with Foggy as well, you know, him having to deal with the fact, you know, he's about to go for the DA, and in comes the FBI into his uh launch campaign for his uh election to uh the district attorney as he goes up against Blake Tower. So just really nice. And then obviously then Matt Murdoch at the end is this fugitive uh, on the run, from the law, fingered effectively by Wilson Fisk for, for being his dodgy lawyer. So it good to see that he survived the, the taxi cab ride from uh, hell. So it was a really, really good episode, but for me it was getting to know uh, Benjamin Poindexter mm-hmm. for sure. Derek, do you defend
1: this episode of Daredevil? Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode of of Daredevil. Yeah, I think, as we said, last episode was the big episode, the one that stands out, the one that makes everybody perk up and watch because it's the big fight scene that everybody's talking about. This episode is such a different episode but fantastic for that. Why not? Why not do something completely different for the episode that has to follow that one, (laughs) you know? But we got to see more about this character of of Poindexter, and it was fantastically told on screen. So different, so interesting, and so much other great stuff going on uh, throughout this episode. Really excited to see what's going to happen in the next episode, and excited to see what Kingpin meant by that line of the city needs another villain, and now I think I've found it for them. What exactly is he going to do?
2: Oh, I have some ideas.
1: Did he mean Poindexter? Did he mean Matt Murdock's Daredevil? We'll be very interested to find out because I'm not actually too sure at the end of the episode, but uh, really, really enjoyable.
2: So gentlemen, on that note, let's move on to some feedback. So first up is a voicemail we have from Logan.
3: Fellow defenders, Logan Simmons back here to talk about the first four episodes of this third season of Daredevil. Uh, Just to briefly start off, I love how much attention that they're paying towards characters not Matt Murdock. As much as I love Matt Murdock and the Daredevil, I think in Season 2 I expected more focus to be put towards Karen and Foggy, and even though there was, I think uh, it was mainly a a Punisher, Elektra, and Daredevil hand-focused season. I really like where they're going with Season 3 so far, and just because I feel like I have to and I just really want to, I got to touch on that hallway fight scene. I mean, it was just absolutely astounding. That look on Matt's face when the light is flashing red, he just has this look of, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? Uh, Something else that I'd like to point out is he went under there as Foggy Nelson. I uh, would be surprised if that didn't come back to bite the uh, possible uh, DA in the future. Uh, Great to uh, hear you guys cover the newest daredevil season and hope to hear some more great coverage thanks guys
1: thanks so much logan really good to hear your thoughts on on this episode in the last couple of episodes interestingly we did see a little bit of that come back on foggy this episode when we heard ray talk to him about the fact that matt had used his id to get into the prison i don't know whether that's going to be it i wonder if that will be something that will come back a lot later in the series that while it's probably floating at the bottom of the Hudson after that taxi crash, but we'll see. Maybe it might come back in the future.
2: Yes, uh, exactly what Derek said. I'm interested to see how this does impact our future DA at law. Mm -hmm. Or avocado. DA. There you go. I bet I got it our potential Avocadier nice yeah thank you so much Logan really appreciate any voicemail and especially one from a fellow Defender like you.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to leave a voicemail, just go over to the website at DefendersTVPodcast.com. Click on the right-hand tab. It says leave voicemail. And you leave up to 90 seconds of your thoughts, just like Logan did.
2: So we also have some Facebook feedback. Uh, and starting off, we have feedback from Bob Phillips, who had this to say. I'm very much loving how Fisk is growing and grooming both in himself, clothes, hair, skin tone, and grooming his next helpers. The prison fight was probably the best I've ever seen in any show or film. Outstanding job. Still very much liking the way Daredevil is becoming darker and more worrying. Possibly going down the monomaniac anti-Fisk line, which is also affecting Karen. Foggy did one of the best timed political speeches I've ever heard. Thank you very much for that feedback, Bob. And yeah, I'm right there with you on Foggy's speech. It felt very much from the heart. But at the same time, this was a Foggy who caters to his audience so much. He knew who he was talking to mm-hmm. and how to kind of swing that vote a bit. Um, but yeah, no, really, really good feedback.
1: Yeah, no, that was really, really good. Thanks so much for that, Bob. Yeah, no, thanks very much, Bob. Yeah, Fisk growing and grooming his uh, his potential next helpers I like that. <laughs> very good. On some feedback from episode 5, Ray from Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast sent us an email to feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com. He says, Hi Defenders, hope you've been enjoying Daredevil Season 3 as much as I have so far. It has really bolted out of the gate and has much to do with Eric Olsen and the directors of the show. Episode 5, directed by Julian Holmes and written by Tanya Kong, is a gem in that it gave us very entertaining and visually stunning portrayal of the flashback episode, which we've now come to expect each season of the Netflix Marvel shows. The origin of Bullseye, a very easy character to relocate to hammy crazed psycho was handled really well with it being told in fisk's mind i loved how it was done in black and white and we take the journey with fisk as he reads up in poindexter's transcripts with how it was visualized for us the viewer having the young dex show off his uncanny skill his time on the baseball field his time with the therapist all set up as scenes within fisk's apartment was a very nice touch donofio shows great empathy in his face as he along with the viewers discovers the tragedy of dex and his ongoing struggle to steady his moral compass Bethel shines in the role of Dex, a.k.a. Bullseye, as do the younger versions of his character, all finely acted, showing vulnerability and has a scary side to them which keeps you on edge. Dex's therapist is someone I want to give a shout-out to. I thought she did a great job, too, in the minor role and had much to do with the success in these scenes. The art direction by Holmes takes chances here, and I love it all. So not only do we get a great flashback during his childhood, but the scene where all three, Julie, Fisk and Poindexter, are under a spotlight with Fisk in the middle, watching a creepy bullseye, eye off, an unsuspecting Julie. You don't see many shows take a chance to do something like that. It can come off as corny, but here, I think it was handled really, really well. Without ending up writing a whole essay, I just want to point out one more thing that caught my attention. As Dex returns home, ruining his chances with Julie at their dinner, the soundtrack and camera work well to encapsulate the psychosis of a very fragile and unstable man. This again is a masterstroke from the director Holmes. The whirling camera giving you a sense of vertigo and nausea whilst the broken brass discords add to the chaos. It's all a brilliant way for us to feel what Poindexter feels, and that final scene when he desperately grabs for his therapy tapes and headphones, the empathy and pity for such a sorry soul is wholly encapsulated. There is so much more to discuss for this episode. Foggy's campaign, Nadim's sleuthing, Karen's dark secret, and Matt's return from the dead, again. But I'll leave that for the other defenders who've written in. The craft which Holmes and his crew have managed to incorporate into this episode had to be praised alone, needless to say... I watched this episode twice, back to back, I was so impressed. Onward now to episode 6, thoroughly enjoying this ride. Still a shame the likes of Danny and Luke won't be around to create more high quality scenes such as these. Fingers still crossed for heroes for hire. Okay, my rambling must cease. All the best to John, Chris and Derek. Loving your show as always. It's now a staple that goes hand in hand watching these new seasons. I don't leave home without it. Traveller of the night, Ray thanks so much for your feedback really really great points there right some things that we didn't even cover ourselves on this episode as long as it was uh really really good thoughts there though
2: yes thank you so much am i right in saying high priest of Khonshu? mm yes i did get that right he
0: he died in the taxi cab um at the bottom of the hudson
2: oh ah. Or did he
0: oh, there get was no driver? Yeah, exactly. How no can he possibly die? <laughs> he will always come back. There was no driver. It's okay. It's okay. That's it's why I said it. You no, know, it was in the boot. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually like in the taxi that you see as it's being hauled out of the river. Uh, you, you do see the guy's card. Um, I did try to zoom in to see whether it did say Mark Spector. But alas, still no bite to this line. Mm -hmm. marvel netflix uh but yeah thank you ray for the feedback it it was really really good i I loved the camera work where uh you get the spinning um nauseous uh work there from from home so that was really really good and yeah great to have this moment with benjamin poindexter
2: yes ray thank you so much and i agree with all your points and as Derek said, there are points in there that we haven't even covered yet. And that is why we need you, our fellow defenders, to write in and give us your feedback. Because do you know what? We're only three men and a little baby. No, just three men. We can't pick up on everything. So that's why we need you. Much like Jamie Alexander, who wrote in over on Facebook to say, Fisk is putting the pieces together, which is both exciting and terrifying. He keeps putting on this submissive act for the FBI, but he's pulling so many strings, and he's totally hired Julie, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder what kind of audiobooks Donovan's listening to. Hmm, it's podcasts, not audiobooks. He's just he's listening to Defenders TV <laughs> podcast. are number one Marvel Netflix podcast. Jamie went on to say I guess not all violent psychopaths are good with the ladies. Maybe Fisk can give Dex some romance tips in exchange for his services. Now that's actually a really interesting point. Can you imagine a spin-off show where it's just Fisk giving dating advice to other super criminals? It'd mm. be amazing. Wrapping up Jamie had this to say The lighting and camera angles make Dex's apartment look so small and cramped even though it's quite large according to New York standards. I love the little bubble of controlled order he's created for himself and then watching him lose that control was amazing there's so much going on this episode it never dawned on me that we hadn't seen matt at all until he walked into his apartment at the end Mm -hmm. thank you so much for that feedback jamie really appreciate it and yeah i'm right there with you but i really want to see that spinoff show of fist giving dating advice
1: you know, I know that Fisk found the woman of his dreams, but I'm not sure he'd be able to give that advice to everybody in the world. <laughs> I feel like it might have been his first girlfriend as well, so uh, not too sure whether he has the great has the greatest dating advice in the world. Wait around for long enough, get powerful enough, have enough money, and go to an art dealer, and there you go, <laughs> you'll find the woman of your dreams.
2: <laughs> or we could it could be Fisk, Bullseye, and someone else, and Matt is the main host, and it's called Blind Date. That's a special one for all our UK listeners over there. Thank you so much.
1: Tori Eisnagel replied, I'm pretty sure Fisk hired Julia because he knew Dex would screw it up and let the crazy out if he was given the chance to actually talk to her. Now Dex's support system is gone again, giving Fisk the perfect opportunity to swoop in and become the new support system for Dex. I also had the same reaction to Matt walking into his apartment at the end. I didn't even miss him. There was so much else going on. They're doing some great character building this season excellent stuff Tori. yeah really good points there yeah that that idea of taking away dex's support system because of what fisk has learned from his research into the character of dex is he needs a support system around him even though julie didn't know it perhaps she was his support system and now he's going to be able to swoop right in there and go right now i'm right here for you i'm the good guy talk to me
0: yeah no absolutely thank you uh tory for for the feedback
1: and also, thank you, Tori, for sending us an email to tell us how to pronounce your name. I know we've screwed it up on the past on the podcast, so really sorry for that. But it's Tori Icenogel.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Tori, for that. Uh, Jeff Child says, that was an incredible episode. I love the way they showed Dex's backstory. His story is heartbreaking and creepy at the same time. And the eponymous logo on the baseball cap as well. I also really enjoyed the interaction between Karen and Nadim. Some great season one callbacks. I love Foggy's speeches as well. He has definitely kissed the Blarney Stone. (laughs) Why, thank you, Jeff. Um, We do like to offer lawyers uh, the chance to kiss
1: the Blarney Stone. Mm -hmm.
0: Or any other tourists that may... Pop along to uh, the castle. As
1: long as you pay your fiver, everybody's entitled to kiss the Blarney Stone and talk whatever way they would like to talk after that, yes.
2: (laughs) Exactly, it's the only reason us three beautiful defenders are able to eloquate so beautifully throughout this episode. (laughs) To be sure, to be sure.
1: Well, it is also the reason why Blarney Stone's abbreviation is BS, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thanks so
1: much for all of the feedback, fellow Defenders. Really good of you. If you want to join us over in our Facebook group where we're putting up our spoiler posts as we watch the episodes so that you don't spoil us about the episodes and we don't spoil you, uh, pop on over to our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast. If you want to talk about anything at all to do with the rest of the series, the episodes we haven't watched just yet, email us at feedback at Defenders TV podcast either pop on full season review or any of the episodes you want to talk about and let us know your thoughts about any of the episodes and we'll talk through them as we get to those episodes throughout the season. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode.
2: Yes. Thank you so much. And we'll be back for our next episode. Daredevil season three, episode six, the devil, you know, because you know what? It's always better. The devil, you know, so says Kylie Minogue. (laughs) Thank you so much, fellow defenders. And we'll talk to you again next time.
0: Yes. I'm off to meet the candidate. Over a nice selection or smorgasbord, if you will, of hams and dried cured meats. <laughs> Bye.